Dan chapter 15, tonight, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight, while we're turning there and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles, and if you get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands marked to our passage tonight, and then you can read along as well as hear the Word of God. In chapters 13 through 23, 11 chapters of the book of Isaiah, a significant block that we began last week, we have what is known as God's uh, record of his uh, judgment he was pronouncing upon 11 nations that were in the vicinity of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah that Isaiah was ministering to uh, principally. And, of course, it speaks to us of God's sovereignty not only over the church and over his own people, but his sovereignty over world affairs, that he makes all of it to serve his purposes. But it also, in the pronouncing judgment upon these nations, there was a very specific thing that God was wanting to communicate to Judah. And it was a time of real turmoil in the Middle East. Assyria was... Uh, the world ruling empire at the time. Uh, the Assyrians, uh, sorry if you're Assyrian tonight, but you were bad people way back when. I'm so glad the Scottish and the Irish have been pure as the driven snow in our history. We never put people's heads on spikes after defeating them and decapitating them and these kind of things. But Syria was... Um, a major military power, and they knew how to make people fear them. And when they would uh, conquer a land, they would go to the great cities of a particular land, and after defeating the city, it wasn't unusual for them to then behead a large number of people and pile these heads in a great mountain at the city gates and in order to terrify all of the other cities that constituted that particular nation and to basically communicate... Uh, give up. You have no chance of uh, defeating us. So it was a fear tactic. They would, it wasn't unusual for them to skin people and uh, skin them alive and take the skin and coat the walls of a city with the skin of its uh, former citizens, again, to terrify. So you don't just have a world-ruling empire that is, you know, working politically and philanthropy, you know, by means of philanthropy to uh, reason with the rest of the world and make it a part of their empire. They were a, a, a dominant military, uh, almost heartless and ruthless military in conquering the world. <clears throat> and no single nation in the Middle East at that time realized they had any chance individually of defeating them or withstanding them. So the temptation was for Judah to align itself with other Gentile nations and form a confederation with the Egyptians or the Ethiopians or with um, uh, any number, the, Assy the Syrians in order to have some confederation that if they attack us, when they attack us, we might be able to stop them from their expansionist mode that they were in at that particular point in time. And when God speaks of the judgment that is going to come to these nations, and basically it would be God's judgment through the instrument of uh, the Assyrian Empire, he was basically telling his people, don't turn to the world for help. 
and the, and the great need and the uncertainty of the hour that you're living in. None of them can offer you any help. All of them are going to be defeated by Assyria. Turn to me. And God was communicating to Judah that he was, and it's the same communication that he needs to make to us today, wants to make to us today, that God is the only source of security in this world. There is no safe place in this world apart from a a relationship with him in which I am walking in obedience to him and I know I am walking in his will for my life. And we live in a world that is unsteady, to say the least, at this point in time. And not just on an international level, but there's a lot of unsteadiness and division within our nation. To say nothing of the individual trials that come upon us and our own families, our own individual situations that we face. And oftentimes when some great catastrophe hits in our life, the great tendency is to want to turn to the world of some kind. Turn to some ungodly or godless uh, neighbor or relative or someone else who we look at and say they have the power, they have the resources, they have the pull, they have the money that, to be the solution to my problem. And so we begin to put our faith in these other people rather than turning to the Lord and saying this is a season in human history to draw closer to God, to go deeper in our relationship with God, not to cease to have faith in God and start to look to the world for help. Well, that's what they were facing. And that's the decision they were making, the wrong decision. And we're tempted individually to make that same decision. When things begin to fall apart, things begin to dif- get difficult. We, in the um, words of a woman that I counseled 20 plus years ago about a situation that was going on in her life, and I talked with her about what God had to say about how she should handle her situation, she looked at me just straight-faced and she said, that's the Bible, this is real life. And this is somebody who had walked with God for a very long time. And I don't think that she was a deeply unspiritual person. I think that the trial that she was in was a place that she had never, ever been before. And her faith had never been tested in this way before. And so none of us are really above a trial coming into our life where we begin to look to the world is the solution to our problems when it's a time to draw closer to God. Isaiah chapter 15. In this particular chapter, we have God's prophecy against the nation of Moab, the burden against Moab. Moab was located uh, in what we would know as modern-day Jordan, immediately to the east of the Dead Sea. And in the location of Moab, if you ever are out in the Judean wilderness on a trip to Israel out toward the Dead Sea area and you look across the Dead Sea uh, to Jordan, you're looking at Moab and you see a great mountain, a great uh, elevation that uh, uh, Jordan, you know, has a high elevation and on the top of that elevation is uh, fabulous soil, uh, wonderful uh, property and land for agrarian uh, purposes. And so this burden against Moab, and he speaks of her defeat, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. 
because in the night Kerr of Moab, these are the major cities of Moab, is laid waste and destroyed. And so they were, as Isaiah was prophesying, and uh, so they ultimately were by the Assyrian invasion. The reaction of the Moabites to this invasion of Assyria, the defeat of their strongest cities, he has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep. And so people ran to the uh, temples of their idols and began to cry out to their idols. They were weeping. Moab will wail. So we read weep, we read wail. There are words on a page to us, except when we put ourselves in the middle of a nation that is so panicked that every single member of the population is in this place. No matter how strong they are, how weak they are, how old, how young they are, something has come into their lives now in the form of this invasion that they are that they lose it emotionally and they begin to weep over what's happening all around them. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba, over all of their heads will be baldness and they they would shave their heads as a sign of their grieving in those days and every beard cut off the same sign of uh, of grieving over what was happening in their country in their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on top of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail weeping bitterly heshbon and uh, uh, Iliala will cry out, their voice shall be heard as far as Jay has. Therefore, the armed soldiers, even the most hardened fighting men within the nation of Moab, will cry out, his life will be burdensome to him. Here are the bravest people within the nation of Moab, given to the defense of the nation, and they begin to weep, they begin to cry out, and uh, cry out, his life will be uh, burdensome to him. In other words, why was I ever born? Uh, I... You know, why am I alive to experience the horror of this experience, uh, of what I'm facing? And I tell you, life can turn very, very quickly. And so it did for the Moabites. I mean, on one day, here they are, they're having their parties, marrying, giving in marriage. They're getting ready to bring the um, harvest in and and uh, the flocks and all of this. And, and then all of a sudden, here comes the invasion. And everyone is broken by this invasion. Isaiah declared, my heart will cry out from Moab. So as he's giving this prophecy concerning Moab, Moab was not always the most friendly nation uh, to Israel. They were a border nation of Israel. Uh, the worst thing that Moab ever did was in uh, Balak hiring Balaam to come and try and pronounce a curse upon the people. Uh, Balaam told him how to bring defeat upon God's people and, and uh, by introducing idolatry into their midst and then forcing God to then judge his own people. But uh, they weren't the worst enemy that they had, but there was always tension between uh, the two nations. They weren't the best of friends. And yet, when this great uh, difficulty comes to Moab, Isaiah, as he's prophesying related to this, his heart begins to cry out uh, because of the refugee uh, fugitives that are fleeing and, and the difficulty that they're facing. And we ask ourselves, why would that be the case? It's never a bad thing, and I think if God calls any of his people uh, to have a ministry, a prophetic ministry of judgment, um, they ought to be able 
to weep and have a heart of compassion even for the people that they're pronouncing a judgment over. It was said of uh, D.L. Moody that he never preached to sinners without a tear in his voice. And no doubt that was an important part of the effectiveness of his ministry. And so in our teaching, in our preaching, in our ministry, uh, oftentimes as the world gets worse and worse, there can almost be the smacking of lips sometimes about the judgment that's going to come, and a greater judgment is going to come than uh, is ever described in these chapters. But it always ought to be spoken of in that way. I think that the other reason for Isaiah's uh, sorrow and the brokenness of his heart in declaring this particular prophecy is to realize that the greatest king that Israel ever had was King David. And uh, King David was 25% Moab. Uh, His great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. You remember when David was being chased by King Saul for all of those years and King Saul was endeavoring to kill David out of jealousy and David took his family. Not only was David in danger, but his whole family was in danger in Israel and he sent them across over into Moab. Why would he send them into Moab? Because he had great amount of family there to entrust them uh, and their safety to uh, that family. So there was a connection between the two nations. And he said, my heart will cry out from Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old uh, heifer. For by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up weeping. For in the way of Horanaim, they will raise up a cry of uh, destruction. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate. For the green grass has withered away, the grass fails, there is nothing green. And so it's this, what's described here in Nimrim was a oasis, a source of water and greenery there uh, in, in Moab. But there is such a large number of people who've been made refugees overnight. They're running with just the clothes on their back to save their life. And they're in such great numbers, they're trampling down all of the vegetation. The water is uh, being made difficult to drink. Anything green is just being smashed. The grass fails. There's nothing green. Verse 6, therefore the the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they will carry away to the brook of the willows for the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim and it's wailing to uh, Beir uh, Elim. For the waters of uh, Dimon will be full of blood. There'll be such a carnage there at that water source that it'll be full of blood because I will bring more upon uh, Dimon, uh, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and the remnant of the land. And so this great destruction to come upon them. Chapter 16 is a continuation of the prophecy uh, to uh, Moab. And so Uh, Isaiah then gives counsel to the people of Moab. He says, send a lamb to the ruler of 
the land. And, he's, and we're going to see in just a moment that he's talking about sending uh, a lamb to the ruler of the city of Jerusalem in the strait that they're in. They're to send that lamb from Selah, which is, it means rock. It's the rock city of Petra. It seems that when the Moabites fled from the Assyrian invasion, they fled into Edom and went to the rock city of Petra, which would be, I've been there one time in my life, it'd be about where you would go. <laughs> you know, it is a rock city and quite a fortress in its own right. And so they fled there, and so send the lamb now from where you are, seal it to the wilderness, and send it to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Send it to uh, Jerusalem. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. This is the Moabites, as, as vulnerable as a bird that's uh, fallen out of the nest. It's, it has no means of defending itself. For so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. And so Isaiah counseled uh, Moab to appeal to Judah for refuge. And why would uh, Isaiah do that? Because Isaiah had already prophesied that the one place of safety in the world at that time, the one place that Assyria was not going to conquer against all odds, was the city of Jerusalem. So he recommends that they send lambs as a gesture of, uh, of goodwill, of humility, of sincerity to the ruler uh, in Jerusalem and uh, in, in order that they would open up the gates of their city and allow these refuge, uh, refugees to then uh, come in. And so that was the, the um, counsel given. And, of course, it was a great counsel because the only part of that world that wasn't ultimately conquered by the Assyrians was the actual city of Jerusalem. Take counsel now in uh, verse 3. The Lord then at this point calls on the Moabites to provide refuge to his outcasts, the Jews, regarding some future enemy. And so uh, he says, now go to the Jews, find refuge there. And then however many did there, as God is thinking and he's looking all the way down through history that God has provided safety for uh, Moab in Judah, he sends them there. God's eye looks down through the ages to a day when he will ask the Moabites to return the favor in becoming a refuge uh, to his people. So he said, take counsel, execute judgment, and make your shadow uh, like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts. And so he's asking uh, Moab to receive a large group of Jews who are running from something from the land of Israel as furiously as the Moabites were running from the Assyrians with only the clothing on their back. And he says to them, hide my refugees, hide my people as if in a dark shadow. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Uh, clearly, verse uh, 5 is messianic. 
It's describing Jesus' return to establish his kingdom uh, in the world, that he is going to, uh, his throne is going to be established in mercy. He's going to sit on it in truth, and uh, righteousness and proper judgment is going to come from his uh, throne. So we've got a prophecy concerning the Jews and the need for them to find refuge among the Moabites sometime prior to Jesus establishing his second coming uh, or his kingdom uh, age, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, so it occurs sometime prior to the second coming. Immediately, in the prophetic picture that unfolds here, the Bible teaches us that the Jews will be uh, deceived by the Antichrist. Uh, in the believing that he is their promised Messiah. And he will uh, allow them, he will bring peace to the Middle East. Um, he will allow them to rebuild their temple. If you go to Israel today and you ask the average uh, observant Jew, uh, how will you recognize the Messiah when he comes? They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. How will you recognize uh, the Messiah? Well, he will bring, bring peace to Israel, and he will allow us to build our temple. Now, the problem is, is that before Jesus comes at his second coming, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, and he's going to do precisely that. And he's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount, and we are told at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation after the temple has been rebuilt that the Antichrist will march into the very holy of holies of, of the temple that is a place that is reserved for God Almighty himself. It represented the presence of God. He will march right in. He will sit down. He will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. At that moment in time, the light will go on for the Jews and their veil will come down from their eyes and they will realize that this is not the Messiah. The Messiah would never demand what he's asking for here or do what he's done here in defiling all of this and then they will begin to run for uh, their uh, lives. And so they will flee Jerusalem. The Antichrist will unleash a demonically inspired attempt to try and destroy them. Revelation chapter 12 talks about it. Then the woman, speaking of these Jews fleeing, they fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there are 1,260 days. That is for the remaining three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Later in Revelation chapter 12, we're told that at this point the devil is cast down from heaven uh, to the earth. His angels, the demons are cast out with him. And that when the dragon, the devil, sees that he's been cast down uh, to the earth, that he will then uh, persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child, that is to Jesus. Uh, the Jewish nation did give birth to uh, the Christ, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, John writes, that she might fly into the wilderness, interestingly, to her place where she is nourished for time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of of the serpent. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. Probably a great army 
going after the Jews as they're fleeing that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and God will supernaturally uh, protect the Jews as they're making their way toward Moab. The earth opens its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon uh, had spewed out of his mouth. Probably this great army is just swallowed up by the earth. There's, There's precedence for this in the Bible. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so... They will, the Jewish people, will flee to Moab just as Jesus instructed. In the uh, Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, and uh, demands to be worshipped as God. He defiles the uh, Holy of Holies by doing that. And uh, it's the abomination of desolation spoken of, Jesus said, by Daniel the prophet. When you see this standing in the holy place, whoever reads it, let him understand. Then those who are in Judea, Jesus said, flee to the mountains, flee to uh, Moab. And so God will supernaturally protect the Jews. They will find a refuge during the tribulation period. Those that do flee uh, in, uh, in Moab, doubtless many Jews will come to faith uh, at that particular moment in time. They will realize that they've been fooled and seduced and then realize that Jesus was uh, and is the promised Messiah. And uh, unfortunately, a large part of the Jewish people today are set up for this whole uh, deception and they're convinced the, uh, the uh, they'll be convinced that the Antichrist is their promised Messiah. And you say, well, how can you make a mistake that big? How can you fall for the Antichrist to, and declare him to be your Messiah? But, you know, if you turn away from the truth, then all you are left with is lies. And if you're not going to determine who the Messiah is based upon the law and the prophets, but you want to base it on what you want the Messiah to be, then you're going to get uh, into trouble. Jesus said concerning all of this to the Jews, Jewish religious leaders, he said, I've come in my own name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, he'll, him you will receive. And so this um, uh, terrible chapter that is yet future, but very interesting in terms of how Moab fits into all of it. Then in verse 6, God describes the uh, destruction of the pride of Moab. Again, Moab was very proud, uh, very nationalistic. Listen, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to be a Syria to be proud or to be uh, nationalistic. You don't have to be uh, um, you didn't have to be Babylon. You didn't have to be something big. Even the Moabites, a little tiny old kingdom, uh, could be lifted up in pride and then uh, merit the judgment of God. You think about today, it isn't just great nations of the world, the United States or you know England or Russia or whoever we might name off the top of our head related to this that have to be worried about pride. Uh, Latvia needs to be worried about it. Peru needs to worry about it and, uh, and because it always brings destruction. He says, we have heard of the pride of Moab, and she, he is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. 
And therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundation of Ker Hashereth. You shall mourn. Surely they are stricken for the fields of Heshbon languish. And the vine of Sibma, she was known in the ancient world for her agriculture and especially for her wine industry. And God says all of it will be destroyed. The lords of the nations have broken down the choice plants which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over from the sea. She had this tremendous import-export industry before her judgment. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elia, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will press out wine in the presses. I've made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Harry's. And so here is Isaiah. He's declaring this judgment upon them. And, uh, and, and it breaks his heart to do it. We're told in the New Testament in terms of the heart of God, Isaiah's heart is just but a reflection in the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. It's just a small reflection of the heart uh, of God. God spoke in the Old Testament and he declared to, his, to people, turn ye, turn ye, why won't you turn? I don't take any joy in the death, even of the wicked. In the New Testament, we're told that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Isaiah, reflecting the heart of God in this, it's so needless, and it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not uh, prevail. His gods will be powerless in the face of what it is that he's facing. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And so uh, it occurred exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. We come into chapter 17. We have a prophecy here against Damascus. And so the burden against Damascus. And when Isaiah declares the burden against Damascus, he's really declaring a prophecy against uh, all of Syria. Damascus was the capital of Syria. In the same way, if somebody came and declared a prophecy of judgment upon Washington, D.C., there would be the recognition that this doesn't, just speaking of one city within the country, but that that's the capital city. It represents the country as a whole. And so it's a judgment upon uh, the entirety of the nation. The northern kingdom of Israel had uh, aligned with uh, Syria uh, against the Assyrian threat. And God kept warning them, if you'll just repent of your sin, if you'll turn to me, I will protect you against Assyria. They will not harm you. They will not invade your land. That was the solution to their problem. But they didn't want to repent of their sin or their idolatry. And so they turned to Syria and said, we want to make a, a confederation with you so that we can be united together and maybe have a chance of withstanding the assault 
of the Assyrian Empire. And so this, is, this chapter 17 deals with a denunciation, really, of both sides of that particular pact. Isn't it interesting how even among God's people, the northern kingdom of, of Israel, okay, we can call them God's people by name. I mean, they were so far away from God. It was a, in fact, at this point in time, God was, through the prophets, denouncing their activities. They were engaged in sins and in abominations that were greater than even the pagan nations were practicing uh, around them. The sacrificing of their children to their gods and these crazy kind of things that were going on. And so this was the condition that they were in. God calls them to repent, but they loved their sins so much that they wouldn't turn from it, not even to be saved from invasion. Sometimes I wonder about the country that I live in. I wonder if, if we haven't already crossed that line, that there is a significant majority within our nation who would rather see this country destroyed and defeated if the choice came to happen rather than to give up their sin and their idolatry. I don't know if we're there yet, but I think it's like a 50-50 right now. And it's a dangerous place to be in. That's the deception that can fall upon a people related to sin. It can take, sin is not this innocent thing. It's got a hook to it. It's got an addictive nature to it. And we see that here. You say, why wouldn't you turn? We're talking about the Assyrians. They cut your head off and put them in piles and then they skin your wife and they coat the walls of the city with it. What can you be doing in secret? What idolatry can you be engaged in that is worth risking that to happen to you? And yet they did. Is an insanity related to sin. And of course, it's only the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, that allows us to see things clearly in life, the birth of the Holy Spirit in our life as Christians. But this is where uh, they were. And so God is going to denounce, as I said, uh, both sides of this uh, kind of confederation, both Syria and also of the northern kingdom of Judah. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. It's going to be utterly defeated by the Assyrians. One of the things that the Assyrians did as a part of defeating a nation is that they then simply displaced the population. They didn't defeat the country and then say, all right, all of you can hold on to your farms and keep your factories going and we're just going to tax you to death. Uh, certain empires did that. The Assyrians didn't do that. In order to destabilize uh, the empire that they were in in what they felt was a favorable way toward them was they would conquer a nation and then they would take that native population and displace it to another part of the Assyrian Empire and then bring the people from way over here and bring them back into this land. And so nobody was in their homeland. It made it harder for them to develop a rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. And so the very thing is described here in verse 1. The cities of Aroer are forsaken and they will be for flocks which lie down and no one uh, will make them uh, afraid. The fortress will cease from 
from Ephraim, and Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, speaking of the fact that her capital city of Samaria is also going to be defeated. The kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. And now he turns his full attention to Israel and the fate of Israel now, because they've united with Syria, instead of repenting of their sin and turning to God, in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. So they're not on like Weight Watchers. Everybody's going to get skin and bones simply because there is not enough food. And he describes the smallness of the harvest and the starvation that is going to occur. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of uh, Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most beautiful, uh, fruitful branch says the Lord God of Israel. So we've just finished a, a wonderful season of harvest in the Central Valley and, and uh, in the, uh, the surrounding areas of Modesto. And what God is saying is, so here you have the farmer who goes through the almond orchard and shakes those trees. And by the time he shakes them, I don't know how many times, I remember when I used to pick prunes, for our school clothes when I was in high school, they didn't have McDonald's back there and all that stuff where you could get a job for, to earn these things. So you did agrarian work on that. And so we would pick prunes and they would go through and they would shake the trees twice. And then whatever was left was this, you know, a few little prunes here and there. And, and then you would just leave it because they weren't worth the effort. And so what God is saying here is that at the beginning of the harvest... Their crops and their trees and, and, and all are going to look like they've already been harvested. There's going to be nothing upon them, uh, even when they begin the harvest. And in that day, a man will look to his maker, for his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. So in the midst of this judgment, there would be a group of people who would then realize, hey, we're not just up against Assyria here. We're up against God. We need to get back to God. We need to listen to the prophets. And so this group of people then did in the catastrophe of, of the moment and the season turn back to the Lord. And in that day, his strong cities will be as a broken bough and the uppermost branch, which they, uh, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. In other words, here, this northern kingdom of Israel is going to be as fragile as the tip of the tree on Charlie Brown's uh, Christmas tree. You've seen it where they put the ornament up on there or Snoopy or whoever, and it just kind of goes over. And uh, so it's the weakest part of the tree, and so the nation is as vulnerable and fragile as that. He says, and here he, he speaks of the fact there's no hope for their future because of their failure to repent, no prosperity in their future because they forgot God and they ignored God. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation. It's a big thing to forget God. I mean, yes, that takes some work. He's big. And he chastens, and 
He knows how to get our attention. But man, were they stiff-necked. Ever had God just get you good? (laughs) You ever have a child and you just take their little face and frame it with your hands and you just talk to them like this, you know? Ever had God do that in your life? Neither have I, but there's a lot of... There's a lot of people at Shelter Cove like that. I say it affectionately. I love it. So that's what he's getting right in their face and letting them know. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. How do you give this up? How do you walk away from that? The danger of sin. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. And in the day, you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins. And in the day, in the day of grief and uh, desperate sorrow. So they would take these, get these seeds from these foreign lands. Uh, Northern kingdom of Israel would get seeds for exotic plants from uh, uh, Syria and then bring them and try and plant them. But, it, but what would grow uh, fruitfully in Syria doesn't necessarily mean that it will grow effectively in Israel. And so the picture was you'd bring these plants and seeds from all these other lands and you bring them and you put them in your land and you find out that the land won't support them in the same way. And what God was speaking to them was of the fact that you're bringing in their gods, you're bringing in their ways, you're bringing in their traditions. But I've raised up the northern kingdom of Israel to be something entirely different spiritually from what the rest of the world is. And I will not let it prosper. I will not let that happen. It will die. And so it's a picture of their attempts to uh, find security in these foreign uh, alliances. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas. And so God speaks now of his uh, judgment of Assyria, uh, ultimately as he would judge them when they invaded Judah and then attempted to conquer Jerusalem. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the mighty uh, rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of mighty waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold at eventide trouble and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. This is very fascinating because here is Isaiah speaking. Ultimately, it's in chapter 37 that we have the historical record of the attempt of the Assyrian army to conquer Jerusalem. And Isaiah speaks here in verse 14, then behold at eventide trouble and before the morning he is no more. God says when this great army comes in, against Judah and against Jerusalem. It's going to be this, uh, you know, flurry of activity, this cause for great fear among the Jewish people at evening. But by the time the morning comes, that army will be no more. 
And we know that God sent out an angel and supernaturally destroyed that Assyrian army. And what was remained of it and its leadership then uh, went back uh, home as a result of that. And so a perfect fulfillment of what is described here by Isaiah. Well, we'll stop there tonight because we want to have enough time to enjoy the Lord's Supper this evening. And we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 18 uh, next time. I'd like us to turn to Matthew chapter 26 tonight as we introduce the Lord's Supper.